I feel especially happy about the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show because we're going to be spending it getting to know a very, very important American, someone whose name probably resonates only vaguely with most of us, especially with those of us who are white. But uh, to the African-American community, uh, surely there is uh, a a little more proper uh, veneration uh, for a great man by the name of George Washington Carver. A great man, a great scientist, and uh, someone who was admirable in so many ways and uh, who rose above uh, a very, very difficult beginning of life and through some very, very uh, steep challenges as well to make a very, very deep and lasting difference uh, in the communities where he lived. Uh, I am so happy that uh, a biography of George Washington Carver has been uh, recently published. It was written by Christina Vella, who uh, studied uh, modern European and U.S. history from Tulane University. Uh, She is a visiting professor there and a consultant to the U.S. State Department. And uh, lectures widely on a quite a variety of 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 topics clearly she is very taken uh, with the figure of george washington carver and she writes about him not only with great affection but with also penetrating insight as well and i'm very excited to be able to speak with her about this book which is published by the way by louisiana state university press george washington carver uh, a life is the name of the book and uh, christina vela we welcome you to the morning show what a lovely introduction. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, my introduction to George Washington Carver came with uh, something called Childcraft, which is kind of the children's version of the World Book Encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of its volumes was something about uh, interesting great Americans. I forget exactly what the, what the title was. But there were articles in there about all kinds of different people from... from uh, from George Gershwin to Jim Thorpe to George Washington Carver. Much to my dismay, I feel like I turned straight past that chapter without reading it because uh, I remember at the end it summarized him as being someone who did all this work with soybeans. And I remember thinking, I don't think that's very interesting. I'm going to you know, read about astronauts and great <laughs> athletes instead, right? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and now, uh, particularly after reading your book, and of course from the little I've picked up along the way, I've known that, uh, that, that in fact, that the story of George Washington Carver is a fascinating one and an uplifting, inspiring one. Uh, uh, how much did you know about some of these really interesting details of George Washington Carver before you actually sat down and began writing this biography about him? I knew very little. All of us, you know, who are about 150 years old as I am, <laughs> uh, had these children's books about Carver. He was the most popular topic for children's literature, and of course they were hagiography, but that's what we knew about him, what, you know, that he was a great scientist, that he was black, that he had had a, a very difficult childhood, and that he had contributed so much in the way of making peanuts a cash crop in Alabama, but then we didn't know, you know, that his life was cursed with drama because that's not the kind of thing that you put in children's books. And there were, strangely enough, no real adult biographies of him. So I was just curious about him. I write books about things I want to know about. And I started reading and I thought, gee whiz, this guy really lived a full and dramatic life. And nobody knows anything about it. He's he's beginning to fade from the public view. Now, when I was maybe in the third grade, 
every third grader knew who George Washington Carver was, even if they didn't know who the president was. But today that's not true. They know who Rosa Parks is. They know, you know, other heroes, but they don't recognize him anymore. What Carver did, essentially, for those who are not 150 years old, is that he went to Alabama and saw that the tenant farmers and the sharecroppers were literally starving to death because cotton had leached the soil and wouldn't grow anything, and it was growing less and less cotton, and they were really starving. They really didn't have enough to eat. They were dying of terrible diseases. It was just pervasive want. And he found the one thing that would replenish the soil, which was peanuts. Well, peanuts was no more a cash crop than parsley was. What do you do if you raise peanuts? Where do you sell them? So he set about inventing products that would make companies want to develop them and want to buy peanuts. And he came up, it's not just peanuts, he did it with weeds, with sweet potatoes, with uh, mud clay, with everything you can name, but with peanuts in particular, he developed over 2,500 products from peanuts, insecticide, linoleum, uh, cosmetics, uh, printer's ink, plastics, um, peanut milk, everything that you can think of, uh, he developed. And, you know, Einstein considered him second among the ten greatest scientists of his day. And that's not faint praise. <laughs> That's pretty impressive praise. And and I believe it was right because he was working in a laboratory that would shame a junior high school today. I mean, <laughs> the man hardly had a Bunsen burner. It's just amazing what he did. And by the time he died, peanuts were the second largest cash crop of Alabama and Georgia. Mm. That's quite something. I remember at one point in the book you say that that George Washington Carver's uh, interest in research uh, was not just because of of sort of the abstract notion of scientific curiosity and uh, and wanting to uh, explore new vistas and gain new knowledge. I mean that that drives, of course, a great deal of research and was part of that as well. Uh, but that wasn't the whole story uh, with George Washington Carver, that what drove him perhaps even more than just pure scientific curiosity was the notion of making life better for people out of what he discovered. He did make life better, and absolutely that was what motivated him. He gave away, he refused to take out patents. He said, no, I want to share everything I know with everybody. I want companies to develop this stuff. Why should I protect it? against them. So he gave away all of his formulas, and then he would serve as a free consultant to companies that wanted to develop this or that and show them how to do it. Uh, He was an amazing man. His kindness was uh, boundless. He was the kindest individual I've ever run into in history. He's an example for all of us, really. But in spite of being what I think is really a saint, he had, he was cursed with every sort of drama. He went through everything that any of us goes through. He really suffered in his life. For example, as a baby, 
during the Civil War, he was kidnapped by some raiders, raiders, you know, that were not really attached to any army, were going up and down the countryside because all authority had broken down. And they were just going into these farms and taking what they wanted to and killing everybody and stealing anything they wanted. So they stole this baby. His owner, Moses Carver, was a very kindly, illiterate white man who sent after him. He sent somebody with a racehorse to trade him for getting to get this baby back. And so the baby comes back more dead than alive, and he's raised by these kindly people, the Carvers. But when he's 10 years old, he wants so badly to learn to read. He wants music. He just wants culture. And there was none of it where he was in Missouri. So with the Carver's permission, he left the farm. He walked 10 miles to the nearest town. And from the age of 10 on, he would hire himself out as a houseboy or as a farm worker or anything, gardener, whatever he could. He'd save up enough money that he could go to school for a few months. And he'd go to school, and when his money ran out, he'd go back to work. So doing that from the age of 10... He finally graduated from high school in his mid-20s. And then he went on with several more adventures to Iowa State University, where he got a master's degree. And he had a wonderful niche there. They adored him at Iowa State. And Iowa State was the Harvard of agricultural colleges. There were people there who were going to become secretaries of agriculture in the Roosevelt administration, and he made connections with those people. They knew him very well. They were his friends. And he became um, a professor there. But Booker T. Washington happened to come through Iowa, and he offered Carver a job and appealed to his idealism, and Carver left Iowa and went down to Tuskegee, Alabama, to work with Washington. Now, it was a very fraught relationship. I must tell you that although I think he did a great deal for his people, Booker T. Washington was one of the most obnoxious characters I've ever run into in history. (laughs) He was really a son of a gun. And he was terribly jealous of Carver, suppressed him, fostered cabals against him, did everything. He was largely responsible for the suicide of a woman Carver loved. So if Booker had not died in 1915, I don't know that we would even know who Carver was today. Uh, When Booker died, then Carver, it was like curtains parted, and Carver was able to get out some of his discoveries and be publicized and give talks all over and become the famous person that he finally did. I don't think I've ever asked uh, a, a guest this question. I hope it's a question that doesn't offend you. Uh, I'm just curious if you happen to be black or white. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty hard to offend, certainly not with an innocuous <laughs> question like that. <laughs> I'm white. Okay, I, and and uh, I I mean I I had actually absolutely no idea, and and of course it doesn't really matter whatsoever, except in the sense that. Uh, it, it, I think it says something that you find yourself uh, so taken with George Washington Carver, enamored of him, and so intensely uh, interested 
in him. I don't know. I just think it's somehow worth noting. I guess maybe it says something about his importance, that his importance resonates or should resonate beyond uh, the African-American community itself, that, that all of us need to know more about George Washington Carver and what he did. He should be inspiring to all of us. He is inspiring. Greg, it's the, the oddest thing. He lived through a period of the most virulent racism this country has known. I mean, the racism we have today is nothing compared to what those people went through in the 19-teens, in the 1920s, the 1930s. This was the period of lynchings and torture and all sorts of horrible things. And yet, Carver became so famous that every magazine had him on the cover. By the time he was 60 years old, he was ubiquitous. And white people who were absolutely racist, no question about it, they exempted him from all of that. White people adored him. Uh, I mean, truly, you didn't, you never came across an unpleasant or a, um, a bad remark about Carver. It was as if there was a protective film over him, that he was an exception, he was different. They didn't even see him as black, I think. And I believe the reason for it was he was almost never angry. The guy just didn't have anger in him. He was kind. He did not mix in politics at all. He, he refrained from making any kinds of political statements. All he did was to do his part to make life better for black and white people because a lot of those sharecroppers and tenant farmers who were starving were also white. And he really did make a difference, and they saw that. And as you say, he was just an inspiring example. When he was 60 years old and very, very famous, in fact, he was so famous that there were three things that were always said about Carver, three comments that were always made about him. One was his high, squeaky voice. He had a voice like an aging soprano. And the other thing was that he talked to flowers, Wherever he went, he would start murmuring to plants and having conversations with them the way people make small talk with their dogs. Well, that's what he would do with plants. <laughs> and the other thing was that he loved to dress like a bum. He had clothes galore, but he wore one suit, a suit that had been given to him when he was in graduate school in Iowa by his comrades, by his fellow students, so that he could make a decent appearance at an art competition that he was entering. At the Chicago he, World's Exposition, right? Yes, exactly. And he wore that suit for the rest of his life. Every decade it changed color until people no longer knew what sort of suit it was supposed to be. It was so out of fashion, they didn't know what kind of artifact he was wearing. But he never wore anything else. So even when he was so famous that everybody knew exactly what he looked like and he would be spotted on train platforms and things like that. Oh, there's George Washington Carver, the famous scientist, the one who looks like he's homeless. Well, at that point, he fell head over heels, head over heels in love with a 23-year-old white man. And that affair lasted 10 years. It was quite a drama. So you see, he he lived a normal life in the sense that it was a life that was very messy, very full of all kinds of problems. I mean, maybe more than most of us. Uh, and yet he maintained this goodness. 
You know, there were people who would meet him. For example, there was one girl, uh, a waitress, who he uh, who waited on him in a restaurant when he was making a talk. And she said, I couldn't get off work to go and hear you, Dr. Carver, but I wanted to tell you how much I admire you. Well, he sat her down and he talked to her for about 20 or 30 minutes. Four years later, and this was common, this went on all the time. Four years later, this girl writes him the most beautiful letter and says, you know, those moments that I spent with you changed my life. You gave me confidence. You made me realize things I had never thought about. I had been frightened all my life, and I hadn't understood why, and I'd been anxious. And suddenly you took all that away from me. I want you to know what you did for me. Now, this was a semi-literate girl who talked to him for maybe 20 minutes, and that was the power that he had over people and the power that he had over himself. One thing I want to make sure we we uh, say before we get into a few uh, details that I, th- I hope will entice people to seek out your fascinating book is the fact that uh, George Washington Carver uh, himself was not the most reliable uh, source of information about particularly his early life, uh, and and you make the the, the perfectly uh, valid point that uh, that he was probably never in a serious way, asked about his earliest life uh, until decades later. And, uh, and in, so at various times that he would talk about various chapters in, in, in his life, uh, th- those accounts would, would change from time to time. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and sometimes you know, it would be the fanciful uh, myth-spinning of a writer uh, that, that he would enjoy and not correct. I mean, it ends up, the, 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 the result then is this really complicated uh, historical legacy uh, full of inaccuracies, and uh, and you, as someone trying to write a serious biography ab- about him, had to try to sort through all of that. Can you just say a word about just what a complicated challenge that is? Well, you had to go through census records and things of that sort, medical records, to find who was born when. For example, at one point, um, he was supposed to have had some sisters. Uh, and another, he, had a, he did have a brother, uh, and he would report these things kind of vaguely, and then you couldn't find any record of it, and you'd see that he, he wasn't really sure. What happened, you know, when he was kidnapped was his mother was kidnapped with him, but she was never found again. He, in later life, he tried to put detectives on her trail, but he never could find out what had happened to her. And he would hear about her having had twin girls who were born before him, but he wasn't sure. And so he, as you say, a writer would make up some nice little story about his life, and George Washington Carver would just chuckle and say, hmm, I find out more things about myself reading these articles, but he wouldn't bother to correct it, or he didn't think he was that important. He thought, whatever people want to think about me, that's all right, as long as, you know, it's not harming anybody. Uh, yeah, it was very hard. Um, you had to go mostly into public records. And, oh, those public records are so much fun, Greg. You see how the people who are writing them have this kind of homey idiom. Their grammar isn't terribly good. And you realize that you're, you're reading the records of a small town written by somebody who maybe had a fifth or sixth grade education who's trying to get things as accurately as they can. 
And it's just a lot of fun. You feel like you're really touching American history. You're really touching those people who lived in this godforsaken place in Missouri. (laughs) We're speaking with Christina Vela about her book, George Washington Carver, A Life, in which she explores in in remarkable detail and in very moving fashion uh, the life and career of George Washington Carver, a very, very important American, an African-American who was uh, a a great scientist who uh, transformed life for many, many people, especially in poor rural uh, America. Um, We can just touch on a few details, I'm afraid, in this long, remarkable story. Uh, One of the things that jumped out at me uh, about his his earliest life was when you tell us about uh, the people that we sort of think of as his parents, although they weren't literally his parents, mm-hmm. Moses and Susan Carver. They gave him his name, uh, but they were not actually his parents. They they actually owned his mother Mary, and uh, they themselves did not really approve of owning slaves, but. Uh, in a sense, sort of made an exception in purchasing 13-year-old Mary. Can you just say a quick word about these intriguing people and what I've just read? Oh, they they were so cute. Moses Carver was just a first-class eccentric. He believed in saving absolutely everything. Now, I must tell you that they took George and his brother to live with them in their cabin after the kidnapping. That cabin was about 10 by 12 feet. In other words, it was probably smaller than your bedroom. And there they all lived. And here's Moses, absolutely unwilling to throw anything away. If you ate something, it had a seed. That seed had to be saved so that it could be planted. I mean, everything. He would save gourds in order to use them for water containers. But for all of that, for all his crankiness and his, uh, you know, skin plentiness, he was apparently a really kindly man. He taught George to play the fiddle, and George could play any instrument you handed him. It was just a natural gift. And he did his best to get George enrolled in the school for white kids that they had in Diamond, Missouri. And they wouldn't accept him, and so that was when he gave his permission for George to walk 10 miles to Neosho to to go to school. Susan Carver was kind of a very quiet woman, but she um, taught George embroidery and needlework and very fancy kinds of needlework, and some of the examples of his work still exist, and it's really quite impressive. So these were just fundamentally good uneducated, well-meaning people. I think they bought Mary, his mother, to save her from some sort of situation because she was really too young to help with the kinds of chores that Susan had. And yet they paid $600 for her, which was a lot for a 13-year-old. And then she proceeded to have children. We don't know how many. We, We have proof of two of them. So they were good people, and I think he was always grateful to them. He, his position was kind of between a son and a slave. He wasn't, you know, they didn't exactly treat him like a son, nor did they treat him like a slave. They treated him, I suppose, like uh, like an adopted kid. In those days, everybody had some orphan 
in their family because mortality was so high for people. There were always children left without parents. Some relatives would take them over and raise them and treat them pretty kindly. Hmm. We should mention that when uh, this kidnapping occurred uh, in which uh, little George and his mother were were, were kidnapped, taken off. Uh, George was actually retrieved, rescued, but uh, his mother had disappeared, and we we know nothing about uh, what what ultimately uh, happened to her. Just say a quick word about the state of Missouri where this took place. You describe it uh, in in such fascinating fashion as kind of a turbulent backdrop. Well, it was. It was one of the border states that the South and the North were always fighting over. And the thing that characterized the part of Missouri that he was in more than anything was that, yes, Union armies came through, Confederate armies came through, they trashed whatever farms they passed through. But then when they were finished and had moved on, there would be these raiders, these um, gangsters, really, just uh, lowlifes who claimed to be, oh, we're part of the Confederate Army. Well, they weren't part of anything except just a bunch of thieves. And they would come through and shoot up the farm and uh, grab people and torture them to get them to tell them where their money was. And if they didn't have any money, they would drink everything that was on the farm until they were unconscious, and then they'd proceed to just take anything of value, the slaves. And both the Union and the Confederate sides had people like this. And they were just marauding because there was no authority. Schools had closed, banks would, I mean, there was everything that everybody you would call to help you in a situation like that didn't exist anymore during the war until after the war and the country was put back together again. Hmm. I don't know if you've mentioned it yet in the interview, but you, you touched on how looking through public records from this period is is quite fascinating. And you mentioned, I know in the book, that uh, when you go through some of these old records, in many, many, many cases, you it's touching to see where there should be a signature, a simple X, mm-hmm. where it will be someone who does not know how to sign their own name. And George's... Uh, uh, George's uh, guardian, Moses Carver, was, was such a person who could not uh, write his own name. And yet somehow his, uh, I keep wanting to say his young son, it wasn't his son actually, but we sort of think of him as his mm-hmm. son or stepson, George Carver. Um, he himself became literate and was incredibly intelligent. And you tell us, uh, eventually, a lover of poetry and opera, more published and erudite probably than anyone Moses Carver ever met. I mean, it's one of those miraculous stories of of something, someone emerging from the most unpromising of beginnings. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because it is a source of wonder to me. Here's this little boy. The only music he's ever exposed to are the fiddle tunes that Moses plays, and he's allowed to sit on the steps of the white church when they're singing hymns at um, Sunday services. That's his total exposure to music. His total exposure to art was that he would take flowers and boil them and get colors, and then with his fingers he'd paint on trees that had been cut and had a clean face or on pieces of discarded glass or anything he could find because he had no art materials. That was his exposure to, to art. His exposure to poetry was uh, a neighbor 
who had some books who would lend him different books. And he taught himself to read, so he could read long before he left to go to to find a, a formal education. Now, this is a man who, as you say, he loves opera. He loves classical music. Where in heaven's name did he hear it? How did he develop the taste for it? He loved poetry. We're not talking about greeting card doggerel. We're talking about the great poets who you and I probably had to have teachers to understand these poets. And here he is with this deep, deep appreciation of culture and events that he, as a black man, he could not have attended. He couldn't walk into an opera even if he had had a ticket, even if he'd had money for a ticket. He would not have been. And yet he developed such an abiding love of these things and does his best to bring them to Tuskegee. You know, there are some very moving incidents. I mentioned that there was a woman he loved very much. Well, he and she and her sister and other people would put on Shakespeare plays in her home because they reasoned, where else are these black people in the hills going to be exposed to Shakespeare if not here? They can't go to a theater, even if the theater is having a Shakespeare play, which they weren't. Uh, You know, it's just, when you think about the poverty of their resources and what he made of them and the people who surrounded him, what they did with them, it's very, very inspiring. Mm. You write at one point, far worse than any material privation in George's life was the frustration of rural isolation. And a little later in that same passage, which is one of my favorite in the book, where you oh, kind of describe the, the backwardness of, 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 of the people amongst which George was, was living, uh, you, you write, uh, and I, I guess this is where you mention the fact that you look through these documents, and so many of them are signed with an X. Uh, those, those documents reflect the general mentality in Hamlet, such as Diamond, Diamond Grove, an inclination to thrift, godliness, steadiness, and contented ignorance. I think that's really the heart of the matter, the fact that George, for some reason, was not contented to live in that kind of ignorance and isolation. He somehow had some awareness of a wide world full of possibilities, possibilities meant for him. You know, you're right, and One of the things that appeals to me so much about him is that he never had this elitist contempt for ignorant people. He only wanted to help them. He only wanted to open doors for them and open doors for their minds. But he he did not have a snobbish bone in his body, which I guess is why he always dressed like a bum. He wanted, he identified with the, the man farthest down and just wanted to make his life better. He would show people, for example, how to white. He'd he'd make a whitewash out of the mud clay that Mississippi and Alabama is so noted for. He figured out how to make a very simple whitewash, and he went around with his little wagon showing the people how to make it themselves so they could whitewash the insides of their houses and make them fresh and clean. He said these people have so little beauty in their lives that, you know, if they can just improve their own surroundings a little bit, it'll make them so much happier. And so he'd take his weekends, and that's what he did. He'd outfit this little wagon, and he'd go around trying to show them 
how to save on this, how to make a few dollars selling eggs, how to do this or that or the other, how to improve their their homes. He was just marvelous. Hmm. And you tell us that that the Carver Farm was an important school for George in many ways. Growing up amid cornfields and barnyards was not a bad start for a boy who would become an agricultural scientist. On the other hand... uh, Hours, the hours he had spent with books were squandered in the usual drudgery of farm children. So all that uh, that, that entailed. And that was not, of course, fully satisfying to his uh, hunger for education. Just describe to our listeners the lengths to which young George Carver went to secure uh, more of an education, much more of an edu- education than would have been possible if he had remained in that small little community. Well, first of all, he walked the 10 miles to go to the next town where the Freedmen's Bureau had set up a black school. And when he felt that he knew more than the teacher there, which was after about three years, then he moved on, and he would hitch rides with people who were moving farther west. At one point, you know, they were giving away free land to people who would uh, plant it. And at one point, he staked a claim Now, he planted with, he had one instrument, which was a seed uh, dropper, uh, um, an instrument where, you know, you'd stick it in the ground and it would drop a seed and you'd go around the rows. That was, that and a shovel were his only implements. And he planted orchards, even though what that meant was bringing water from the only pond, which was about a mile away from his orchards and watering them bucket by bucket by bucket while these orchards were developing. Well, he finally did sell that stake, and he found his way to an art school. And he went to the art school for three years and was about to graduate when a woman, an an art teacher, said, Look, as a Negro, you're going to have a beggarly life as an artist. You need to get into something where you can make a living, and that something is botany or agricultural science. And he said, they're not going to let me into any agricultural school. And she said, oh, yes, they will. My father is the head of the department at Iowa State. Before that, poor George had gathered all of his letters of recommendation, written all of his essays to get into a Presbyterian college, And they had accepted him. This college had advertised itself as being open to everyone. It was a, a, we don't close our doors to anyone or something like that. And this is in far-off rural Kansas. So it's quite a journey. That's right. He walked 25 miles to this college, cleaned himself up as well as he could after his journey, and presented himself to the registrar. The registrar's jaw dropped and said, oh, my gosh, we are open to Indians, not Negroes. It took five minutes, and so he was rejected. And then he couldn't get back to where he had come from, so he stayed in the town, was discovered by some of the white people who then began to advise him and help him and, you know, just made a little community around him. People who met Carver, I don't think there was ever anybody who didn't love him. Students for the rest of his life would write him at the rate of two and three hundred letters a week, a week from student from former students 
who just treasured him like a father. He must have been the most charismatic person in the world. I would love to have met him. <laughs> oh, of course. I felt the same way as I read your book. I appreciated the fact that you talk as much as you do about the chapter of his life uh, between being rejected by that college that only took uh, Native Americans and not African Americans uh, to the time at Iowa State. In between, he he spent time at, at a college I almost attended myself. Really? Uh, Simpson College in Indianola, Iowa, right outside of Des Moines. The art college, yeah. Right. He studied art there. I would have been a music major there, but uh, you you describe an, actu- an absolutely beautiful experience that he had there, actually. And uh, because he was so poverty-stricken, he ended up actually being given permission to live in an abandoned shed on the edge of campus. But very quickly, various students and even people from the town of Indianola did all that they could to kind of reach out and make life better for this young man uh, with so little to his name. I mean, uh, this chapter of his story is, I think, one of the most inspiring. Yes, you know, Richard Nixon did the same thing. He lived in a tool shed when he went to college something to really admire about him. George goes to this tool shed, and there's nothing there. There's no running water. There's nothing but but rats. And he made it habitable. He took in washing from the other students. He cleaned professors' houses. He cleaned barns. He worked his way through Iowa State with the most menial and hard jobs imaginable. I mean, he worked every minute that he wasn't studying or wasn't in class. Nobody, um, as kind as people were, and they were generous and good, but, you know, you have to say honestly, nobody gave Carver anything. He earned everything, everything he got. And you quote him as saying years later that he took great pride in the fact that he never, ever asked anybody for money. And and the way he phrases it makes it sound like uh, he never even accepted money from others. All he would ever ask for was a job. Do you have work I can do for you? He wanted to earn everything that he was given. He was just an admirable character. I know we probably made him sound so dull because he's so <laughs> saintly. But then there were those love affairs, you know. He had several. <laughs> right. And people were always falling for him, which is... You know, not surprising. Absolutely. Um, when he gets to uh, Ames, Iowa, to uh, Iowa State, and uh, to begin studying more of you know, kind of the matter of botany and agricultural studies, uh, he did not find nearly as warm a welcome uh, as he did in uh, Indianola, Iowa, for for some reason. Uh, it was uh, it was. It was a difficult transition for him. Interestingly enough, the transition is made far better when he writes back to somebody back in Indianola who had really taken him under her wing, uh, confessing his discouragement and his temptation maybe even to drop out. Um, So he wrote this letter to Mrs. Liston, and Mrs. Liston reached out then to a very important uh, woman, Miss Etta Budd. Explain to our listeners why she figures so prominently at this point in the George Carver story. Well, Mrs. Liston went to the campus and walked around all day with George. He was eating with the janitors, and he wasn't allowed to eat in the cafeteria, and she ate with him. He was the only black student there at the time. Oh, yes. And so she paraded around... 
a very elegant white woman, and so everybody, of course, noticed her and thought, well, you know, maybe we should pay a little more attention to this fellow. And then she talked to Etta Budd. Well, Etta Budd was the woman whose father had been the who, whose father was the head of the agriculture department at Iowa State, and so Etta made sure that her father talked to George and kept him where he was and didn't allow him to even think of dropping out. And after this trip of Mrs. Liston's, the students began to be more interested in him, and a few of them made friends with him, and then, you know, more and more and more, the prejudice against him dropped, and he ended up, he was a joiner. He joined every club he possibly could. He was in music clubs, debating clubs. Uh, just He just had fun in college. And they began to know him, and to all of that just seemed to drop away, so that by the time he graduated, he was just like a mascot for the school. <laughs> they Beloved. loved him. Absolutely. <laughs> and, of course, this is it is during this time that friends of George uh, pool their money and buy him that suit so he can take uh, his artwork to be juried at the uh, Chicago Exposition, World Exposition. So uh, so this is indeed a very, very happy period. It is, where he got honorable mention, by the way, <laughs> for mm. his picture. Unfortunately, we don't really know how talented an artist he was because his collection was burned in 1947. Uh, four years after his death at Tuskegee, there was a fire, mm-hmm. and he had set it up in a museum, but, but it, most of it burned, and we just don't know whether he was very talented or uh. not. <laughs> at any rate, uh, what he goes on to accomplish after college is, is extraordinary. But one of the things that is really an intriguing part of the story is that when he, in a sense, accepts his first full professional job someplace else outside of the comfortable confines of his own college. Uh, It is at the Tuskegee Institute, uh, headed by Booker T. Washington, such a charismatic figure. But these years are extremely difficult for George Washington Carver. And this, I have to say, was the most surprising thing in your book, your description of what it was like for George Washington Carver. Uh, We would just (laughs) so naively assume that he would have gone to this uh, school conceived by and for uh, blacks and that he would have just settled in comfortably, especially being such a gentleman. In fact, it was a place full of all kinds of jealousy and difficulty, very poor working conditions. I mean, this was a trial in so many different ways for George Carver. It was terrible. You know, um, there is a or there was and probably still is, a tremendous prejudice among blacks uh, regarding color. The blacker you are, the lower down you are. And everybody at Tuskegee was very light-skinned. If you look at pictures of Booker T. Washington, he looks as much like a white man as he does a black man, and which is one reason why he was probably so well accepted in the white community and was able to raise so much money for Tuskegee. But Carver, George, George was ebony. He was so black that pictures of him, you can hardly distinguish his features because he just soaks up the light. He was as black as black could be. Nobody could ever imagine that he, they couldn't say, oh, well, he's so accomplished because he has white blood in him. Uh Uh-uh. There was no white blood in that man. He was as black as could be. 
And they were prejudiced against him for that. And they were also tremendously jealous of him because he had come. He was, at that time, the only man who had come from a white institution. He had had sophisticated experiences that they could only imagine. Now, later on, that wasn't true. Later on, Booker got some very eminent people uh, teaching at Tuskegee. But at the time George went in 1896, he was an anomaly, and they didn't like him. They were they they were extremely jealous of him, and they just did everything they could to to bring him down a peg. And probably when he got there, he himself may have felt superior to them, and he may have shown it. Uh, I think I cite a couple of instances where he was a little tactless. Um, but more than anything else, everybody did what they thought Booker wanted them to do. Booker was the tyrant dictator and uh, not just the head, he was the king of Tuskegee. And if they got the idea that he didn't like Harvard, then they didn't like Harvard. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's interesting, you, you describe the Tuskegee Institute, uh, the way Booker T. Washington ran it, that it was as though you had joined a religious order, or maybe the military. I mean, it was not a place where ideas were freely shared and expressed or where one uh, maybe uh, spoke one's mind. Uh, it, it was a very, very regimented uh, place, and of course with very, very threadbare sorts of resources that were so frustrating for a scientist like, like George Carver. You tell us, though, that he went on to accomplish extraordinary things there, even in those really difficult early years. I want you to especially tell our listeners about uh, his idea of taking the college and its resources, meager though they were, out to the out to the community into the outlying areas Friday afternoons on his wagon. This says so much about who he was. Describe this to our listeners. Well, he outfitted this little wagon with all kinds of things that he thought would be useful to the farmers in outlying districts. Now, he also hosted once a month um, a kind of seminar where people were invited to come and he would show them all sorts of things, like how to fertilize the ground without commercial fertilizer. Nobody else had done that. He was kind of one of the pioneer conservationists, and he would show them that if they would just shovel swamp muck and put it on their crops, that this was as good as any commercial fertilizer that they couldn't afford. So he had these seminars once a month, but and people would come. They'd come in their haggard wagons and stay and then go home after dark and so forth. But there were still people who didn't come, and it was these farmers that he went out to to reach. He'd uh, show the women, for example, how they could can fruits and vegetables and how egg white would make a good seal for uh, some canned product. He'd show them how to stretch something that was um, not in abundance and how to use something that was, where they had too many potatoes, for example, or too much this or that. He'd show them uses for it, like making starch out of certain things that then they could use in their clothes, and, you know, just all sorts of practical things. He loved to cook, and he had hundreds of recipes, simple recipes that illiterate women could follow. And he would show them these recipes, how to cook this, how to make that. And then he'd go and look at their ailing hogs or their cows, and he'd provide veterinary services. I mean, he'd just do anything. He'd spend the night with them often, 
and go to their church the next day and speak at the church and try to spread even more information. He wasn't talking in in these things. They were not sermons. They were not religious sermons. They were practical talks about how to make their farms work better and how to get a few extra dollars. So he did that every weekend after working. Everybody at Tuskegee was overworked. He wasn't the only one. But after doing that all weekend long, that was what he did. (sighs) You know, at one point you describe, particularly early on at the Tuskegee Institute, you describe his life there as exhilarating and excruciating. And I think the story of George Washington Carver uh, is so much about that, uh, excruciating in some of the difficulties which he faced, but exhilarating in the way that he managed to surmount them. It's, it's an amazing story start to finish, and we leave it to our listeners to explore it further in your wonderful book. Again, it's called George Washington Carver, A Life published by Louisiana State University Press, including some really remarkable photographs that also help bring this remarkable man to life. Christina Vela, thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about this remarkable man and your wonderful book. Greg, you are a fabulous interviewer. Thank you most sincerely.